0: Hello, I'm David Rennie, the Economist Beijing bureau chief, and I'm here with my co-host Alice Su, the Economist's senior China correspondent based in Taipei. This week, we're talking about a wave of repression that is being directed at civil society groups that for the past decade have been allowed to support and campaign for LGBT people in China.
1: We're asking... Are these groups being closed down because the Communist Party wants to roll back the clock and make homosexuality criminal a quarter century after it was legalized in China?
0: Or is this actually about politics more than it's about sex?
1: This is Drum Tower.
0: From The Economist.
1: David, hello. Welcome back to Drum Tower. We missed you last week.
0: I missed you. So Alice, how's the COVID second wave hitting in Taiwan? Because in Beijing, Shanghai, a whole bunch of people are getting the Lurgy.
1: Oh, I have to say I I haven't really seen much evidence of the second wave here. Actually, the restrictions have loosened recently. It's become fine to take the subway without wearing a mask. So if there's a second wave, I'll have to dig a bit to figure out what's going on.
0: You know, the weirdest thing is that China's big cities, they're doing the same, right? There's no controls, there's no testing, there's no masks, but lots and lots of people are getting a second dose of COVID, or in some cases, old people their first dose, and they are not vaccinating old people. There's just nothing going on, no boosters, no nothing. It is a very, very strange situation, but that's not what we're talking about this week. We are talking about a wave of a different sort, a wave of really nasty repression, and some of the gay rights groups that I'm sure you and I have interviewed over the years are just being closed down one by one. And the latest one, the Beijing LGBT Center, which is such a big landmark in the nation's capital, so the most sensitive place. And that closed on May the 15th, citing forces beyond its control.
1: Yeah, I read about that in the news. And I have to say, first of all, it was really sad. And secondly, it was so striking to me because that happened last week. Right. But the very next day here in Taiwan, there was this landmark change in the Taiwanese laws where same sex couples were given the right to adopt children for the first time. And so just reading those two pieces of news together, it did make me feel very much, again, like two sides of the strait are going in opposite directions. Absolutely. The center that we're talking about, the Beijing LGBT center, what did it used to do?
0: It may surprise some listeners that, you know, this is a one party state, it has secret police, it has absolutely no tolerance for dissent. But for the last decade and a half, there has been room for groups to say, you know, under Chinese law, we have some rights. Under Chinese law, you know, we should be allowed to go to court. And so that center that just closed down, one of their biggest successes came in 2014, when a really brave gay activist went undercover and went to this clinic that promised to convert people from being gay and make them straight with electroshock therapy. And he went through this horrible experience. And then they came out and they sued in a Beijing law court, this clinic for false advertising, and they won the case. And so that was a really interesting example of that kind of, it wasn't a golden era, frankly, but there were ways where you could use China's law to try and demand some rights. And Those kinds of groups, those advocacy groups, those legal aid groups, working with creative and good lawyers, those are the ones who seem to be uh, closing one after the other.
1: But at the same time, as those rights groups are closing down, the public space for the LGBT community is also shrinking, right? I mean, I recall that there used to be pride celebrations actually every year in Shanghai, and and that has stopped. And community spaces where people used to get together, you know, are, are there still kind of, you know, movie screenings and those types of group events happening? Just places for people to be together and to express their gender as they like.
0: So Alice, you're absolutely right. If we're going to talk about the fate of the gay rights movement, we need to talk about gay people and we need to talk about the rights movement, civil society. So let's start with reality for gay people. So I remember my own kind of observation as a foreigner blundering around China as a journalist When I was first posted to Beijing in 2000, I remember this amazing meeting where a visiting British government minister came to the British embassy to brief us reporters. She had just had a meeting with the Chinese health minister who told her, because they were talking about HIV, that there were no gay men in China. Mm. (laughs) Interesting. The minister, who was kind of cool, said, and I bet him 100 quid there are, and he didn't take me up on the bet. (laughs) But, you know, that's 2000, right? Total denial this idea that homosexuality is basically a foreign plague that's you know nothing to do with China's tradition. By 2019, my second posting if you are in a big city, there's gay bars, there's gay clubs, there's gay dating apps which are legal.
1: Mm-hmm. I just want to cycle back for a moment because you've just taken us through the way that social acceptance towards the gay community has really changed and really opened up, but actually, in China, the formal classification of what it means to be gay has also changed, right? So up until 1997, homosexuality was actually a crime. And then up until 2001, homosexuality was classified as a mental disorder in the Chinese Society of Psychiatry's list of disorders. On that list, homosexuality was called xing tai; It was a sexual perversion. And in 2001, they made a major change. They changed the phrasing to say, actually, homosexuality is not necessarily abnormal um so they kind of you know acknowledge that it can be normal although at the same time they also added a reference saying but there is something called ego dystonic homosexuality or basically gay but not in harmony with yourself. And it said, well, some people who claim to be gay also become anxious or depressed and they wanna change their orientation. And that is a disorder and those people do need help. So from the perspective of the gay community, it was a big step forward just to acknowledge, oh, this is not a perversion. But at the same time, there was this justification there for things like what you mentioned, you know, electric shock, conversion therapy, and for this idea that there are fake gays and they can be molded back into straightness, into the correct orientation. So slowly over the years, people have been getting more used to the idea of, oh, there are, of course, there are gay people in China. And there has been more and more space opening up for people to live in the ways that they want. And especially in urban China, there's even a pride celebration. And in recent years, there's been a very active voguing and and ballroom scene. And I think young people especially are very open to gender diversity. But, you know, young people is, is not everyone. So, I mean, David, what is your sense of the law-abiding the general ordinary person's view of how acceptable it is to be gay?
0: It's a really good question. And it's a good question because so many times when gay people do get fired for their sexuality or they do get punished for putting out a rainbow flag at university, the authorities say, well, of course, you know, it's not that it's illegal. It's just that general public opinion is still very traditional and they won't tolerate this. And so there's a kind of an appeal to this sense that China is a very traditionally minded country that isn't accepting.
1: Right. And you and I both remember how Xi Jinping in recent years has talked about the importance of masculinity and for Chinese boys to act like men and not to be like sissy boys. And basically, he seems to be very disturbed at the kind of effeminate expression of masculinity that he sees as you know coming from the outside. And it's very much something that has been promoted from top down, that there is a gender role. There is a way that men should be like men and women should be like women.
0: Alice, you're absolutely right. There is this big, big push to be sort of more socially conservative and kind of march in in lockstep behind a red flag towards the glorious dawn of great rejuvenation. But it's amazing how companies, when they're busy firing people, as you say, the top-down pressures are very, very clear, but they have these super sneaky arguments about, oh, well, it's not us, of course, it's public opinion. And if you want the worst case I've seen, was a flight attendant who worked for the biggest airline, China Southern. Now, he lost his job in 2020. It was a really sad story. A male pilot was his partner. They were caught on a surveillance camera kissing. Somehow that went viral. Hundreds of millions of Chinese people saw it. And the airline canned him. And when he went to an employment court and said, on what grounds do I lose my job for this?, The airline literally said that passengers might recognize him from that viral video and cause a mid-air disturbance, which would endanger safety.
1: (laughs) Okay, so it's about flight safety. That's what it's about.
0: It's about, yeah, buckle up, turbulence. It's all that. (laughs) And, And what's really sad is that actually there's been such good work to try and shape public opinion by really smart gay advocacy groups. So when I was doing that reporting in 2019 that I told you about, one of the most moving things was a meeting of PFLAG, which I think you know has branches in lots and lots of countries around the world, parents and friends of lesbians and gays. And it's basically, it's just this really lovely organization where kids who have come out bring their own parents to hear from other parents about, yes, it was a shock, but this was my testimony. And I went to this meeting in a shopping center in kind of a really smart bit of Beijing in this luxury shopping mall, little room tucked away. And, you know, you had these 20-something gay students who'd come out and there was some parents listening very, very quietly. There were some dads at the back looking super embarrassed, didn't know what to say. And then there were like one or two mothers who were like very into being gay mothers. And they had like the rainbow <laughs> flag scarves. And there was like their testimony about, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm never going to have grandchildren. But then I realized I love my daughter still just as much. And this really kind of weepy scene. Mm. But it was really, it was so human and constructive and... Positive energy, actually. (laughs) Yeah, and unthreatening to a big grown-up superpower like China. And the really sad thing is that even those meetings are now under really intense pressure from law enforcement.
1: So, David, right, that is incredibly tragic. We've just been talking about the ways that gay lives are being affected by the shrinking of space. But in a moment, we'll be back to talk about how gay rights groups are being affected, and to discuss why this crackdown is happening now.
0: And you can read much more about China in The Economist. This week, we have a piece on Hungary's relations with China, that kind of nationalist strongman alliance between Xi Jinping and Viktor Orban. We have a piece about a crazy story involving a stand-up comic accused of insulting China's military who may even go to prison for that. If you're not a subscriber already, then we've got a free 30-day digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com
1: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. So, David, again, we've just been talking about gay lives in China. Now we're moving on to talk about gay rights groups. And by chance, I had a coffee this morning with Darius Longarino, who I know you also know him. He's a fellow at the Paul Tsai China Center at Yale Law School. And for many years, he has been working with Chinese LGBT rights groups, trying to Advance their rights through litigation. And this morning, I actually recorded him for a bit since I knew we were doing this podcast. We were sitting in a park, so you can hear like some birds in the background. But he was telling me about what used to be possible, you know, as recently as 2016, when the first marriage equality case came up in Chinese courts.
0: So, wow, so 2016, there were people trying to have a court case about gay marriage?
1: Yeah, that's right. And it was actually in Changsha, there was a gay couple who tried to register their marriage, and they were rejected. And then they decided to sue the Civil Affairs Bureau for it. And actually, this is the first time same-sex marriage came up in a Chinese court, and it actually had a lot of coverage, including by state media. People's Daily tweeted a photo of the two men holding hands.
0: And it's a big deal that the court accepted the case, right? That itself is a big deal.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, of course, they lost.
0: Spoiler alert. Yeah,
1: but it was still something that created a lot of public discussion. And here's Darius telling us about it.
0: Yeah. Hundreds of people came to the courthouse. And the court itself actually provided a courtroom that let maybe 100 people be able to sit and like watch the case. And other people were able to gather outside and had a sort of carnival-like atmosphere. And even though I imagine the lawyers in that case knew that they... We're not going to win that case. It was an opportunity to articulate the sort of hopes of the community in keeping with the existing legal framework, just reinterpreting it differently and then creating discussion around that, that with time, you could create enough momentum that it would actually have a change. It might take a long period of time. my um, such a nostalgia trip to hear kind of people talking about legal avenues using China's own laws. That was how it was 20 years ago. It was classic civil rights stuff, right? You know you're going to lose the case, but you go to court, you hope the judge accepts the case, and then you try and just nudge the conversation on. And there have been some really creative lawyers over the years. Do you remember three years after that case in Changsha, people started using this guardianship law that had been designed actually for old people, perhaps who lost their faculties or went into hospital and needed someone who wasn't their spouse, Uh, maybe their kid, was how the law was designed, to be able to take big medical decisions or financial decisions for them. And around 2019, there was a bunch of gay couples in China who started to try and register each other as a kind of first baby step towards gay marriage.
1: Not a spouse, but a guardian. So at least some kind of recognition that you have a connection to each other.
0: Yeah. And there was a real reason for this because there's some really sad cases of there was a lesbian couple who lived together for decades and then one of them died and the The other one's family just kind of rolled in and took the apartment and all the money and said, you know, you don't exist. You have no legal standing at all. And so there was a real desire to at least, as people start to get old together, what do you do about, you know, if one of them goes into hospital, who's the next of kin if they have a big operation? It was that kind of very basic civil rights. And remember the whole debate about the civil code, which was going to have new regulations around marriage, also 2019.
1: Yeah, that's right. Actually, Darius brought that up too. He was saying how these LGBT rights groups, they were really able to mobilize the public. So that year in 2019, they got over 180,000 people to submit comments to legislators saying, you know, we want to have same-sex marriage recognized. And he told me people were even writing their personal stories and sending photos of themselves with their partners or parents were sending photos of themselves with their children and basically just speaking up and saying, like, we really care about this. This is something that we want to change. And, and that really shows the organizing power of the LGBT rights community.
0: Organization and the real courage of gay people in China, because this was an online site where, as China's legislators discussed this new civil code, citizens, if they were willing to use their real names and their Chinese identity card numbers, could make an official comment about what they thought the code should do. And so there was this campaign, as you say, Alice, nearly 200,000 people signed up, and they weren't demanding gay marriage. What they were saying was that where the law referred to husbands and wives, it should talk about spouses. So the idea was that by making it gender neutral, and then people could explain why they thought that would be a good thing, because one day China should have gay marriage. And we actually saw Back in 2019, the National People's Congress, one of their spokesmen for the Legal Affairs Commission, acknowledged this wave of people who had made these comments in support of gay marriage.
1: Right. This is one of the main points that Darius was telling me. It's not that gay rights groups are no longer pursuing impact litigation. There are still cases happening right now. Like there's two students at Tsinghua University who are punished for putting up rainbow flags on the campus university market. And they are now you know suing the Ministry of Education because of that. But the problem is that these days when these cases happen, they're immediately censored. So nobody knows about them and nobody talks about them. And so the way he said it was, Now there's just litigation and no impact.
0: Uh, Do you want to know something really cynical about the censorship machine? So this year in February, there was a United Nations rights hearing overseas, and China sent diplomats and legal officials to say that China doesn't discriminate against gay people. And they actually used the example of that 2019 civil code discussion. And all of those people who are allowed to put comments and submit them in favor of same-sex marriage... And the Chinese officials sitting at this United Nations meeting abroad said, you see, we have free speech. We have democracy. We don't discriminate against gay people. And here's the really cynical thing. That was for the consumption of the United Nations hearing abroad, not reported inside China. And the main legal advocacy group that organized all of those people to comment back in 2019, LGBT Rights Advocacy China, was closed down by the authorities in a really gruesome way in 2021. So abroad, Chinese diplomats, proud as you like of their tolerance and openness to things like gay marriage. Back in China, no one hears about it. And the groups that try and work on these issues are being closed down one after the other.
1: So David, why do you think this crackdown has intensified? You know, Why are these groups being shut down now if they were able to operate in a gray area for such a long time?
0: So Alice, that's a really good question. So I spoke to some activists this week, actually both of them abroad now, who have been interrogated by Chinese police and who've had their groups closed down to ask them in those meetings with Chinese law enforcement, what were they talking about? Were they saying, you know, you people are kind of endangering the morality of society or it's a political problem? And what was unbelievably clear was that in every time they were summoned in to have tea at the police station or questioned or had their events kind of challenged, it was about national security and particularly this idea that any minority, and in this case, it was gay rights groups, but it could be feminists, it could be ethnic minorities, any minority is going to be used as a tool by hostile foreign forces like America to attack China. That was what the police kept talking about time and again.
1: Yeah, so it's not so much about their actual sexual orientation. It's not about them being gay, but it's about you are forming a group that could be used by outside forces.
0: Absolutely. And it's such a trap for these groups, right? Because as the space shrank and shrank, if you wanted to hold, say, a film screening for gay students, as it became harder to have those on campus, what did you do? You went to a European embassy or to a consulate or to a cultural center because they would host your event. And then you have the police summoning you and saying, why are you consorting with foreign embassies? They're clearly trying to attack China and make China look bad. I spoke to a guy called Raymond Fang. He was the co-founder of Shanghai Pride. There's pride groups all over the world, right? Their idea is just kind of celebrations and parties. They tried to be as non-political as possible. But even that group closed itself down in 2020. And I talked to him about his encounters with the police.
1: In our conversations, it's mostly... Is it foreign influence? Will there be a political statement? They are concerned if any ambassadors are going to say anything. Is there going to be a Hong Kong element in it? Is there going to be a Taiwan element in it? So, of course, from a security perspective, there's this fear of hostile foreign forces infiltrating Chinese society through these groups. I'm wondering, David, is there also a demographic angle? We see Xi Jinping talking about gender roles. And we also see the Chinese government promoting this new era, marriage culture and childbirth culture, telling people to have babies. You know, is there a hostility there to gay people because, oh, they're not going to be part of the national goals to boost population growth?
0: There absolutely is. In fact, I recommend, you know, Darius Longarino, who you spoke to in the park. He has a great Twitter feed where he just constantly posts these, you know, (laughs) just jaw-dropping, you know, some piece by an academic from a state-run think tank or some official media explaining why they banned effeminate actors from TV. And now you'll see it's because China's trying to have everyone have three babies and we need to, you know, make babies for the motherland and it's going to lead kind of people astray. Raymond Fong, the co-founder of Shanghai Pride, I asked him if that came up in his conversations with the police he made this really good point. He goes, okay, well, if you're worried about having too few children in China, then let gay couples have children because plenty of gay couples would like to either have their own children or adopt children, but China won't go there. So gay couples in a parallel, more tolerant universe could actually help the Chinese government with the population,
1: Yeah, I mean, as ever, you know, that's a very clever way of putting things. And I recognize that that's how a lot of Chinese civil society has worked in the past, right? It's like to try to seek progress by framing what they want in terms of the party's own goals. So it's like, oh, you want harmony and stability and families and babies. So recognize our families and we can contribute to those goals. Or, you know, you're worried about stability, then we can help make society more stable by helping people and, and addressing their needs.
0: That's right. And, you know, what's so heartbreaking of this whole sort of story of covering these issues for the last 25 years is there was such, as you say, clever, but also constructive work going on. So Shanghai Pride, Raymond Fang was saying, they didn't have outdoor parades. They didn't get in people's faces. They never said gay rights now. They would say, actually, being gay is not a mental illness. Let's help you understand how it works. Or you had other groups working with the local police to say, We can do HIV prevention work by reaching out to gay people who are going to be very hard for you as police to contact, but we can help you. And that's good for kind of public health. It was so incredibly careful, as you say, trying to work with the grain of the party. But I think the backdrop to all of this, as so often, is Xi Jinping's decade in power and that paranoia about China being under siege and national security is the backdrop to everything.
1: Right. And in Xi Jinping's China, when the authorities are so paranoid and fixated on national security, minorities become a threat, right?
0: That's right. One way to understand communist China under Xi Jinping is it's a giant utilitarian experiment. Everything is run in the name of delivering benefits to the decent majority, the patriotic majority, the majority that listens to the party. And in that context, minorities saying, well, hang on, under Chinese law, we have some rights here. That becomes a source of instability, and that makes them potentially tools that foreigners, that the Americans, that the West can use to try and divide and hold China down. And that's not just me talking. You know, you've seen some really senior Chinese securocrats using exactly this language. There's a really brilliant essay that Jeremy Barmay, the Australian sinologist, recently reissued. That was written actually back at the very beginning of the Xi era by a guy called Yuan Pang, who's now really senior at the Ministry of State Security. Back then he was an America expert at a government think tank. And he talked about the five groups that America would try and use to infiltrate China from the bottom up. And some of them were predictable, like dissidents, human rights lawyers, underground Christians, and other religious groups. But then he just chucked into his list Rosha Chunti, this idea of like vulnerable groups. So, you know, this could be people who through no fault of their own are vulnerable because they're a minority or they're disabled or they're otherwise kind of marginalized. And in the view of this essay written by this senior state security guy, that makes them a danger to China because the foreigners will try to use them. So you see that to be a marginalized, unhappy minority in China doesn't make you the object of the party's compassion. It means you are a threat and the police will be on their way around to talk to you.
1: Yeah, that's right. And in the past, civil society used to say, well, these minorities, they have all these needs and we need to empower them. And that's going to help make China more harmonious. It's going to help with social stability. But nowadays, under C, his answer is to see minorities as a threat and as a target for control.
0: Thank you to everyone who's been emailing us. And remember, you can always send us messages at drum at economist
1: Thank you for listening to Drum Tower. We'll be back next week.
0: Our editor is Poppy Seabag-Montefiore, and she produced this episode with Alicia Burrell and Barkley Bram. Sound design is by Tingley Lim, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Jason Palmer.